0: So the the, um, reading is from Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer.
1: I'll pray for you, Philip. Father, thank you for Philip. I want to thank you for the amazing work you've done in his life. For the effect that that has had on others, his family, friends, colleagues. Thank you for the work you're doing in his life. Bless you for all the family, all the Davis family. But right now I want to pray for Philip and uh, thank you for what you've laid on his heart. Thank you for his passion for you for his heart, for prayer, and um, for his mind, that you've given him uh, a sharp mind. Bless you for my brother here, and thank you for the word that you've given to him. And as we, we listen to what you're saying, Lord, help us to receive what you want us to receive this morning. We bless you and give you all the glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The wiggly wire. Is that all right, Alistair? Yeah. Love your garden. I'm not quite Alan Titchmarsh, but you know what I mean. His plummy voice is something I can't quite speak. Do you love your garden? I think it may be linked to age. But the older I get, the more I love my garden. I watch Gardeners World religiously. I make notes on what Monty Don is telling us every week. a, A thought that occurred to me this week is that a garden closely observed is like a voyage of discovery that you can have without leaving your house because every day you find something new has budded or blossomed or growing. In a garden, I believe, we can surely meet with God. And I think there's a link, of course, because only God can make plants grow so beautifully. On the other hand, we humans also have a task, an input, intending the plants, arranging them, tidying. Along those lines, just listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 36, One thirty-six, He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Now, he's talking about a congregation, but surely what he says applies even more directly to a garden, and those of you who've been attentively looking at the rolling notices, may or may not, Well, I've seen that Claire and I are gonna open our garden regularly for prayer and reflection after Easter, every Thursday, so you'll be all very welcome if you wanna do that. I think in this context, it's no coincidence that some of the most important turning points in the biblical story take place in gardens. In a garden, Adam and Eve rebelled against God In a garden, Jesus emerged, resurrected from his tomb. Mary Magdalene took him initially for the gardener. Between those two, what I think we can call a pivotal point is what we've heard about the Garden of Gethsemane. Our series is about atonement, and remember what atonement can be defined as, as reparation for an offense or an injury. Satisfaction and thereby the reconciliation of God and human kind, where the first part applies to God. And a quick way of thinking, which Dan has mentioned before, but is worth repeating, is it's at oneness. You split it into three. Are you at one with God, atoned, or are you separated from God? An atonement is not present. And these three garden stories in the Bible, Eden, Gethsemane, and the tomb, can be seen as first the loss of atonement due to sin. There was a separation of humanity from God that occurred in the Garden of Eden. Then in Gethsemane, we see Jesus challenged by the cost of atonement, the restoration of humanity and our relationship with God. And finally, in the garden outside the tomb, as Jesus met Mary Magdalene, we had atonement fully achieved, restoration of relations of humanity with God for those who took Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And we're gonna look at those other garden stories, especially Eden, briefly later on. But our main theme, of course, is this pivotal story in Gethsemane, which we've heard read, where Jesus struggles with the cost of atonement. The war in Ukraine is easily the worst development in the world that I have seen in my lifetime. I often find it hard to sleep thinking with pity about the residents of Mariupol or Kharkiv under the bombs or Kherson under Russian occupation, and I bet I'm not alone in that. Yet that was just one war, that is just one war. Think of all the wars that humanity has ever participated. Think of the horrific cruelties that are described even in scripture. Think of all the abuse that people have suffered in their personal lives, murders, kidnaps, scams that ruin people's lives, suffering from the misdeeds of others, and that guilt that often torments the perpetrators. All the sin of the world, is it any wonder that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled and said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. All too often, Jesus is depicted as the cool God-man who went through death on the cross knowing that the resurrection would follow. Gethsemane tells us otherwise. It depicts a Jesus fully human and full of horror of what would happen to him not only because he would have to bear the sin entire sin of humanity on his shoulders but also because he knew in doing so he would be separated from his father breaking the at one meant between him and his father that dated back from before eternity For the holy God by nature cannot live with sin, hence Jesus' cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Contemplating all that, it's little surprise that in that garden he proclaimed his torment to God the Father. So Jesus suffered in the garden of Gethsemane. But here's a question that you might want to ask yourself. How did he know How did he know that he would have to bear all the sins of humanity? How did he know that he would die unjustly and therefore enable us to be reconciled to God? And the answer is, because it's all in God's word, which the Son of God knew through and through. We're gonna show you uh, two short verses from Isaiah chapter 53. And Jesus would have learned the full story of his task as the suffering servant of God in that passage. In a sermon series when I was looking after the church in Pench, I called that chapter Jesus's Mission Manual. It told him everything. Just listen to these words. Why don't we read them together? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Knowing that passage in his heart, in his soul, he knew indeed he would be that suffering servant of God, the Son of Man that he would be pierced, crushed, punished, wounded. And why? For our transgressions, our iniquities, to bring us peace, to heal us, to bring us back, who had strayed and turned away from God. And indeed, the Lord had laid on him has the iniquity of us all, all those sins, the horror of every Ukraine, every personal hell, And this would be God's will, as Isaiah went on to write, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Jesus knew his task was to give up his own will to be obedient to his Father, accepting that task that he himself long predicted. He again quotes Isaiah 53 in uh, Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's word in Isaiah promised the resurrection as well. It says this, after he has suffered he will see the light of life. But it's clear from Gethsemane that the horror of what preceded it was undimmed in Jesus' thought, bearing all sin, losing his treasured at one with God the Father, excluded from god's presence even when he was closest to his will excluded from god's presence even when he was closest to his will little wonder though there's also an element of temptation in the garden story and we can see this from jesus's prayer he fell to the ground it says and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. It's not in the gospel but the Passion of the Christ film. You'll know how Satan tempting Jesus in that garden to run away, to leave his mission and save his life. Those well-known theologians Mick Jagger and Keith Richards sang from the devil's viewpoint. I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. As I say, scripture's not explicit on this point, but surely Jesus would in any case remember the devil's temptation in the desert to worship him and gain earthly power, abandoning God's mission to be the suffering servant not to have to drink from the cup of God's wrath at human sin. Temptation. Indeed, it's written in Hebrews chapter two, verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was fully God, and he could therefore bear all of human sin and thus achieve atonement, being totally innocent as well but Jesus was also fully human and thus open to temptation. The difference with all of us is he managed not to yield. We've heard Jesus' response in the end was trust in God and willingness to do his will, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, he said, but what you will. Temptation. Jesus was not alone in the garden, there were his disciples as well, Peter, James and John, his closest, most trusted friend. He asked them, stay here and keep watch. Watch so that Jesus would be warned if the Romans or the temple guards came to arrest him, hopefully undisturbed in his prayer, prayer of torment with his heavenly Father. But they didn't do very well, did they? Do you like sleeping? I think it is bliss to turn over in bed, not to turn over in bed rather, considering the world's problems, but rather to find rest. But here we see the disciples failing to fulfill Jesus' simple command. Three times he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Still sleeping. resting are you sleeping now (laughs) sleeping I'm doing a Boris again even though I've got page numbers Jesus rebuked his disciples strongly Watch and pray, he said, so you will not fall into temptation. Temptation. And I think Jesus narrowly was referring to the temptation that the disciples had at that point to escape from this difficult situation. Which, of course, in the end they did. They all ran off, except the women and possibly John. But there's a wider point, too, jesus had just been speaking to his disciples that they needed to be vigilant for his return from heaven the second coming in mark 13 he talks about himself being the owner of a house and his followers are the servants and he said this keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back (coughs) whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn if he comes suddenly do not let him find you sleeping when i say to you i say to everyone what i say to you i say to everyone watch don't sleep and here's the danger that jesus is pointing out that we give in to the temptation to let our human weakness overcome the call of the holy spirit on our spirit Jesus says, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And Jesus is particularly hard, we note, on Peter. Doesn't even call him Peter the Rock, he calls him Simon, which was his original name. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you even keep watch for an hour? Peter's just been boasting. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But then he slept three times. And then he denied Jesus in the courtyard three times. Gave in to temptation. I think there's a lot for us to learn personally from considering Jesus in the garden and the atonement and the temptation. But before I do, I want to consider very briefly the contrast between Gethsemane and Eden. Two gardens, two sons of God, They started with a close relationship with God, both Adam and Eve and Jesus. At one moment, Adam and Eve, no doubt, often walked with God in the cool of the day, in the garden. Jesus freely called his father, Abba, Dad, the closest possible relationship. But then there's the contrast. Jesus was tempted, as we've seen, but the serpent, and the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to mistrust God's goodness, Both were tempted, but the response was different. Adam and Eve gave in to temptation. They disobeyed God. Jesus concluded with obedience, not what I will, but what you will. And that result is crucial to the whole story of atonement. It's Adam and Eve's sin, which we all repeat in our own human lives, that separates us from God that sin which enthroned Satan as the prince of this world, to whom humanity had handed their God-given authority. Hence, a need for atonement, the costly atonement that Jesus achieved, reconciling humanity to God and dethroning the devil, as Jesus said in John 12, 31. (coughs) Now is the time for judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world, that's the devil, will be driven out And what of us? Are we just, in a way, spectators on the agony of Gethsemane? Seeing temptation strive with the possibility of atonement in Jesus' heart, as he, it says in the other gospels, sweats blood. To some extent, that's true, yes. Only Jesus was able to take the sins of the world on his shoulders. Only he was able to achieve the reconciliation with God that humanity alone could not. But I don't think we are called to just be passive observers. We need to gratefully accept the gift of atonement that Jesus achieved in our lives at such a cost. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And it was only because Jesus went through the agony of Gethsemane and then the cross, as the curtain of the temple was torn, that we can approach God. Amen. Amen. Even in the same way as Mary Magdalene approached the resurrected Jesus, in the third garden, the garden in front of the tomb, full of joy as the new creation dawned. And we can know equally that Jesus is with us in times of darkness in our lives, a darkness that he experienced to the full. Gratitude, we must be grateful in deep in our hearts for what Jesus did at such a cost. We must not be like the poet Heinrich Heiner who said, God will forgive me, it's his job. Let's be grateful, too, for the transformation in our lives when we come to know Jesus as our Saviour and Lord, that the Holy Spirit lives within us, that we are freed from slavery to sin, even as God freed the Hebrews from the Egyptian slavery, and not to rely on cheap grace, living a sinful life in defiance of God. We need, to, to stay awake. The call of Jesus unto his disciples to stay awake applies to us too. Paul wrote this, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14 And I think Paul here is talking not about literal sleep, (coughs) but he's seeing an analogy between sleep and death and a life of sin. As Jesus called, we need to watch and pray. We need to be aware of the needs for intercession in the world, in the people we know, and in our own lives. Maybe we even need to pray for Vladimir Putin. So yes, why not pray and reflect in God's presence in a garden? Gratitude. Alertness, but we also need to be awake to the risk of temptation. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and of sober mind, alert, yeah? <laughs> Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We need to follow Jesus and address God as Abba Father and pray earnestly for him to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, knowing that he sympathises too with us when we face temptation. As I close, we'll never be in the position of Jesus facing the wrath of God for all the sins of the world. But there may still be times in our own lives when God shows us a path we might not have chosen ourselves Indeed, about which we might be quite apprehensive, but which is clearly God's will for us. <clears throat> it might be to do with work. It might be to do with your family and friends, or some good deed you're challenged to do. It might be ministry in the church, even joining the coffee rota. Some of us might be challenged, for example, to, ju- to lodge refugees from Ukraine. Then, like Jesus, We must say, but not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus is not alone in that submission. Isaiah, challenged to be a prophet, to people who wouldn't listen, said, here I am, send me. Or Mary, challenged to be an unmarried mother at danger of her life. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So as I close, let me just pose this question. Is he speaking to you now with such a call? Or possibly, have you answered the call and finding it hard? Let's have some quiet time for a minute or two to reflect on that. Have you a call? And what is your response?